Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Great to have you joining us on another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And we're honored to be welcoming songwriter Mark D. Sanders. He's had more than 200 recordings of his songs made by recording artists, 14 number ones, 50 have been singles. So many of his songs are instantly recognizable. Probably the most famous song would be I Hope You Dance, recorded by Leanne Womack. Some of the others would be Victim of the Game, recorded by Garth Brooks, Money in the Bank by John Anderson, Blue Clear Sky by George Strait, so many others. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Well, I'm excited, Paul. It's an honor to well, have you. Well, not that excited, but, you know, a little excited. <laughs> and you're in Color- Steamboat Springs, Colorado. That's right, Colorado. Yep, for the summer. Nice. What would you say has always been the purpose of the art that you create? The purpose of it? Yeah. Well, once I got to Nashville, I realized the purpose needed to be to entertain on some level, you know. But I always I always tried to entertain in a way that kind of promotes the humanity of everyone, you know. I try not to not to be mean to women in songs and you know, not put people down and I don't know, I just tried to stay human kinda. And that's kinda how I approach my career, I think. You know? I'm I'm just trying to say most people are good and, you know, it's better to be nice to people than to to put them down, kinda. That's kind of simplistic. Hmm. What would you say makes you suited for country music? I don't know. I think, I know I wasn't suited for pop music. I lived in Southern California, and I grew up in Southern California. And when the time came when I was 29, I told my ex I either needed to be a poet or a songwriter. And I knew that if I was going to be a songwriter, I was going to be in Nashville. And I think... You know, what I liked about country music is it sort of had that humanity going for it, too. Like, if you listen to Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard, even, you know, you're for the working man, but you're also just for for people. And you're not eliminating immigrants. You're not eliminating women. You're not eliminating the other, basically. I mean, when you listen to Johnny Cash, I mean, a few years ago, John Rich said publicly that Johnny Cash would vote for John McCain. And I thought, well, that's not true. You know, and uh, Roseanne made a big stink about it, deservedly, because, you know, John Rich doesn't need to speak for John for Johnny Cash. Anyway, it's just I, I like that, that humanity and the color that comes you know, with it that isn't necessarily in pop music. And I liked old Hank Williams. I liked old country music. So that was, somehow I was meant to be a country songwriter, I guess. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about not the songs that you wrote, but just in general, 
what would you say some of your favorite songs are? Uh, you know, first of all, I like old folk songs. I like to hear different people sing them. There's an old song called Little Sadie. I have a whole collection of people singing Little Sadie. And there's uh, another about sorrow, S-A-R-O. I mean, I just like those old songs that are classic. And I like songs that have a lot of harmony in them. And then I like songs that are just interesting. Like that Macy Gray song, uh, I try to say goodbye and I choke, try to walk away and I stumble. I mean, to me, that is so good. You know, just hearing those lines, I look for, I look for words put together in a way that inspire me. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just keep it digging the deeper hole as long as you let me talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I try never to interrupt. Well, you know, another song I love uh, is Ralph Stanley's The Darkest Hours Just Before the Dawn. And Emmy Lou Harris and, and uh, Ricky Skaggs recorded it for Emmy Lou's Christmas record, I think. And I've listened to that song a million times, especially that version of it. Just something that inspires me. Uh, the old, uh, speaking of D's, uh, like, Dark as a dungeon and damp as a dew, where the danger is double and the pleasures are few. That's Merle Travis. And I just, I just go, you know, that is really good. So that's what, that's what I like, sort of. Would it be correct to assume that the words are more moving to you than the melody? Well, well, the words are moving, but the melody is also moving. So you, I mean, you want to have both of them to have a great song. Like the music of the darkest hours just before the dawn in that version that Ricky and uh, Amy Lou did, there's the world's greatest modulation between the two verses. So Ricky can sing a verse in his key. So, I mean, the music is really important, but I, you know, I, I think it's more interesting to talk about the words, kind of. Yeah. It's hard. You know, talking about music, to me, is just futile. (laughs) I mean, I read people's, you know, reviews and stuff. Just talking about music doesn't work. You know, music just has to be on its own, kind of. Yeah. But you can talk about the words. What would you say is the biggest reason for your success in songwriting? I have no idea. I don't know. You know what? In Nashville, there's always whoever is getting played a lot on the radio. There's those writers who are really popular. Then there's the writers who are coming up and learning to kind of do what those people do, but in their own way. And what happens is people get tired of whatever is the most popular and they move on to the next thing. And I was just. I worked real hard and I paid a lot of attention and I was the next guy kind of. So for about three years or so, I was the guy, you know, and then they got tired of my stuff. I could tell they did. And so they went on, basically they went on to Craig Wiseman for me 
and Jeffrey Steele. So it was, it's just, if you're there and you're ready and you're writing a lot of songs, you know, it can happen for you. And I guess there's something that I don't know about that, you know, that maybe it's that humanity I tried to put in the songs. I don't know. Something that people say all the time is about songwriting is how competitive it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I learned more from playing basketball, you know, and it helped me to succeed as a songwriter. I mean, just the competition. I'm, You know, I was competitive my whole life, and I competed in Nashville. I mean, you got a bunch of competitive guys and a few competitive women, and it just, you know, we'll see who survives or who comes out on top. So it's really competitive. And I can speak to it because my daughter is a songwriter now, my daughter Sophie, and, you know, it's so much, it's about a hundred times harder for women. So, especially, and now it seems harder than it was when I was around because we had Gretchen Peters and Beth Chapman, you know, women were writing hits. Now it just seems even more difficult to... Well, what do you think the biggest reason is why some people just don't make it? Well, there's a couple of categories of people who just don't make it. The first one was always the people with too much talent who could go sing their own songs and tour around, you know, and they would drift away. Uh, Kevin Welch, to me, is an example, and I talked to Kevin about it. You know, he's he and I were kind of in the same generation and he was really talented, but he had more scruples than I had sort of. And he thought, you know, I'll just go back to Texas where I can write what I like and, and they won't bother me. You know, I don't have to mess around with this competition kind of. So there's those people. And then the other category that always struck me was that just the people who don't, adjust and change to what, you know, can be played on the radio. You always have to be kind of changing. I mean, it all, it's always changing. And if you're not changing with it, it's going to leave you behind. So some people come to town and they do this one thing well, and they never really change what they do. So there might be a time, I mean, they might get some cuts on things, but they're not going to hang in there and succeed, I don't think. I was listening to the podcast episode that just came out. Uh-huh. I want to point all the listeners to this. It's called Songcraft, and there's a in-depth interview with you there. And I really enjoyed listening to it. But you talked in there about the song Victim of the Game. And you, you said that that uh-huh. was something that changed your life. Well, it did, just because it, all of a sudden we made a bunch of money. It sold 17 million copies. And uh, when Garth recorded it, and then Trisha cut it and sold two million more. So it was interesting. I was the company I was with, Midsummer Music, merged with Major Bob Music in 1989. So Garth and I were in the same company, and we wrote two songs that year. He was just getting started, basically, on his career. His first record had come out, and towards the end of '89. I was finishing my fourth year, I guess, with Midsummer, 
And I always felt like four or five years was my max with any publisher because people get tired of your songs and they know what you're writing and it just isn't as exciting anymore. So anyway, Garth and I, I mean, Garth was taken off. He hadn't hit, he hadn't released a dance yet, but I wrote a couple songs with him and I kind of realized that Garth and I didn't really speak the same language. And I knew he was going to, I didn't know he was going to be huge, but I knew he was going to be a star. But I didn't think, I didn't want to stay there and be in Garth's shadow. I mean, that's just the way I kind of work in life. So I actually, I left the company. Garth actually came up to my office one day and said, you know, tried to talk me into staying. And uh, it was really interesting. And I said, Garth, you know, if I go, I'm going to go. And he was real good about it. But it was right after I'd signed him up to be uh, Columbia House CD Club. <laughs> That's why he wanted me to stay, I think. <laughs> so I could send back all the CDs he didn't want. <laughs> I ended up leaving. And then uh, I went over there about six months or a year later and Garth and Sandy, his wife at the time were in the lobby and Sandy was holding about six of these Columbia house CD that you had to pay back then. You had to pay like 1999 per CD. Yeah. If you didn't send it back. And, and Sandy's looking at me saying, you don't know how many of these we have Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I always felt bad about that. But then Garth, on the radio on XM, I heard an interview a couple of years ago driving home from Colorado. He said, uh, "He said, yeah, my friend Mark Sanders signed me up for this Columbia House CD club." He said, and then one day I I went I got back to the office and this Billy Joel CD was in there, and he said that. I I heard Shameless on there. And that's how I found Shameless. <laughs> so. It was all for the good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard that clip. That's interesting. Yeah, I had never known that until I heard it on the XM. Well, we were just talking about you writing with Garth, but you've written with so many great songwriters. What songwriter would you say has taught you the most? Well, that's easy. Bob DePiro taught me a lot. He taught me how to write up-tempo. He taught me how to have fun and write a song at the same time. He was just, he's, he's you know, my mentor, but he would never admit it because <laughs> I'm six months older than he is. But anyway, DePiro just taught, you know, I just learned a lot hanging around with him and seeing how he did it. And, you know, we had like four number ones together. It's kind of sad, really, that, the revenue for songwriting is is just yeah. it's just not there. What do you think the future of songwriting is? You know, if as long as there's always going to be songs, there's always going to be songwriters, and in Nashville is the best place if you're not going to be an artist to be a songwriter because it's all you know everybody's close by and kind of grouped together. But I have no idea. I don't know how much they make now. I, you know, 
songwriters don't talk about too much about how much they made on the song. Uh, my wife always gets mad if I talk about it. But, uh, you know, we made a lot because radio airplay was pretty good and the sales in the 90s were great. But I think, you know, people are going to keep writing songs because they're going to, whatever they make, they're going to, it's going to be more than they had. So they'll keep writing them. I mean, Shane McAnally seems to be doing great. And, you know, so there's, there's always going to be songwriters, I, I hope. Yeah. What do you think about it? What do I think about what it? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I guess I'm kind of with you in that you, you can't stop inspiration. No. And, you know, and you can't, if somebody is inspired, you can't suppress expression of inspiration. Right. My daughter doesn't care how much money she makes at it. She just wants to write the songs, you know. So I guess, you know, she's inspired. Hmm. And she's going to write them. So it's going to happen. Caitlin Smith is going to keep writing songs no matter how much money she makes. Yeah, There's a lot of great women songwriters hanging around Nashville. I guess in that way, there's a chance that over time quality would go up because it would weed out the That's, people who just want money. Well, yeah. But there's, you know, there's always going to be crassly commercial people. True. And, then there's, and they're going to help out the ones who just have the inspiration. You know, I mean, Bob was pretty commercial. He had a, just had a commercial sense that he wanted to make money, and I wanted to, I needed to make money because I had four five kids, <laughs> so yeah, there was no choice. But there's always going to be a mix of people, you know. And I mean, it makes it interesting. You have people you get along with, and people you don't. You just, but Nashville, you know, it's especially now. I think there's there's groups of songwriters that work together, basically. And uh, I just saw on one song on somebody's new record, there's five songwriters. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they're all going to make a little bit of something, maybe. I don't know. As you've spoken many, many times about your song, I Hope You Dance, in addition to the Leanne Womack recording of it, it was recorded by a number of other people, Gladys Knight. Ronan Keating. Yeah, Gladys Knight. Yeah. Yeah. I love Gladys Knight's version. Just slays me. I'm curious to know, not just of that song, of all of your songs, what recording has surprised you? Uh, surprised me? Well, the Gladys Knight surprised me. I have a Delbert McClinton cut that surprised the crap out of me that Steve Seskin and I wrote. I mean, if there were two writers less likely to have a Delbert McClinton cut, it was Seskin and me. We wrote this funny song called That's the Way I Feel, and Delbert cut it. You know, I got surprised a few years ago when Kathy Matea cut another one of my songs called... Uh, Hurt song that Tia Sillers and I wrote, and Kathy Matea did this wonderful job of it. But it was after her career was 
you know, her kind of her country career was over, and my country songwriting career was over, and we were sort of in the Americana fold. But it's a wonderful recording. So other than that, you know, you just in the old days you just hoped that they didn't screw it up, and then by kind of the early late eighty eighties they quit screwing things up and you know, everything was pretty good. So I need, I need to quit talking on that one. <laughs> this is probably a difficult question of the recordings that have been made of your songs. Is it possible to pick a favorite interpretation of a song you wrote or co-wrote? Uh, you know, the, thing about Nashville is it's not really there's not a lot of interpretation going on because basically they're pretty much copying the demo so it's you know interpretation doesn't seem to have any meaning sort of that's why I talked about that Kathy Mateica because it it definitely is an interpretation of this song, uh, and it's really good. So other than that, you know, in Nashville, you just, it's going to sound like the demo. On I Hope You Dance, my demo of it was kind of over the top, because uh, I, Tia, Tia Sillers is a great writer. You just have to kind of, sort of edit down you know, and I hope you dance I didn't edit down I just put everything in the demo and Mark Wright did a great job of making sense of it as the producer you know but as far as the interpretation of it Leanne just sang the way we had it you know it's pretty not too much to interpret there if that makes any sense yeah when you were writing the song or when the demo had been made, was there uh -huh. any feeling from either of you? Wow, we have a fantastic song here. You know, I never trusted my own instinct on stuff like that. I always just waited to see what happened. I would demo five songs at a time and give them to my plugger, and right away you... The, you know, you realize the plugger is going to pick out one or two or maybe three that they like the most. And with I Hope You Dance, it was just, I turned it in and they just went crazy. And that's how, that was my first indication. My second indication was after Mark and uh, Leanne had made the record, Bruce Hinton, who was the head of MCA Records, called me. And he said, Mark, I know I don't call you very often. And I said, Bruce, I've been in town for 20 years and you've never called me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but he said, he said, uh, I just want to tell you, this was like in December of 99. He says, you know, this record's coming out in January. And Bruce was in, probably in his mid 60s. He said, I've stayed in the business this long by being able to hear things that were going to be big hits and preparing for it. And he said, I think that we're in this situation right now and we need to be prepared for all this. So, you know, 
I thought, well, that's a pretty good sign <laughs> right there. But other than that, I just don't, I don't, you know, I like songs, and but I don't try to predict what is going to catch the, the uh, imagination of the public, like I hope Dance did. I can only imagine somebody saying, Mark, you need to prepare yourself for massive success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was it was fun because see, I had, I had already had huge success when I sold my catalog in '97. You know, my wife and I made a pile of money, and I mean, and I thought, well, you know, I've done all this; it's really been great. And then. The beauty of I Hope You Dance for Me was I'd had a career and then I had this huge career song and it's almost eclipsed the rest of my career. Oddly enough, you know, I mean, people know me for I Hope You Dance. If I play a show like I'm doing on Wednesday here in Steamboat, part of me is thinking, well, these people are just going to listen to everything else because they want to hear I Hope You Dance at the end. <laughs> so, But that's life, I guess, you know. Better to be known for something than to not be known for something, kind of. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of surprised me. There have been a number of times that I've interviewed songwriters who wrote a hit song. It, this has happened more often than I would expect, where mm -hmm. I say, well, what was it like when you had the conversation with the artist, the recording artist? Like, Or did you have any interaction with the singer? And it surprised me. There have been so many times where they said, I've never met him or I've never met her. You right. Know, or, that's, that's sort of the ideal situation. Now, why is that? I mean, I, I, I tried to stay away from the artist as much as I could. Interesting. Yeah. Now, why is that? I, 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 I don't know. I think you just want them to deal with the song itself i don't you know i don't want to piss them off on with something else you know and get in the way i especially didn't ever want to go to the sessions where they were recording my songs because i had a hard time sitting still if i felt like they were doing something i didn't like i don't know it's just and the other thing about artists is if you get in it if you hang out with songwriters and you hang out with artists you come to realize that songwriters are a lot more interesting people than artists. True. You know? <laughs> and so, and it's like, I don't know, just didn't, once the artist gets a manager, to me, I don't really even want to be involved. You know, once you have to go through somebody else to get to this person, I just as soon stay out of it. So I never... I mean, I, I've met most of the artists, but I never really hung out with them. Did you have any interaction with Leanne Womack? Well, I knew Leanne. She had sung a couple demos for me. See, she was married to Jason Sellers, and Jason was like my one of my favorite demo singers of all time. He opened up a whole new world for me just the, the first demo he sang for me was uh heads carolina and he you know he was just so good and so good at harmonies 
And and I thought, well, this guy can sing the songs that I can write. So he's he sort of is halfway responsible for my success. But so I had met Leanne and she sang demos. We we thought Jason was gonna be a star and we didn't even know about Leanne. But then when uh Leanne was gonna she had her record deal, but nobody knew her still. I had recorded a demo of a song called Buckaroo that Ed Hill and I wrote, and Jason had sung a demo on the session, and Jason snuck a copy of Buckaroo to to Leanne, <laughs> and they put it. They wanted to put it on hold, and you know Leanne wasn't had never made a record, no, and you know she was not anybody we thought was going to be a star, and so I said, well, you know. I really wanted to pitch it to Patty Loveless. And I talked to Mark Wright, who was producing Leanne, and I knew Mark. I had known Mark for a while. He just said, well, you know, if it's still available, we'll cut it. And that's that's kind of how I got into Leanne Womack's world, you know, through Jason and through that song. So that was on her first record. And then, I don't know, I Hope You Dance was maybe her fourth or fifth. You were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2009. Yeah. What was going through your head when you were inducted? Uh, it's almost like this great relief. My friends who are in the Hall of Fame, and I talk about it, it's like the club, you get in this club and they, you can't get kicked out, you know? <laughs> it's... It, and And... And it's something, it's like you're, you're ace in the hole. If you're having a conversation with somebody and they say, well, what songs have you written? I say, well, they wrote this and I wrote that. And they've never heard, they've never even heard I Hope You Dance. Or I can say, I can pull out my ace and say, well, I'm in the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't matter, you know, because they can't kick me out. (laughs) The other thing you realize when you get in the Hall of Fame is that half the people are dead who were in the Hall of Fame. So it's just kind of a stopping off point. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 uh, you just see that, you know, there's a, there's a cycle here and here's how it works. Plus they, they carve your name, name in granite twice, you know, and it's hard to get your name in granite before you die. So <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's just such a relief to be in the Hall of Fame, I guess. Interesting. Do you think that there are any misconceptions about you? Oh, I'm sure there are, but I don't know what they are. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, I mean, there have to be misconceptions about me. Because I know even my siblings have misconceptions about me. So, Like what? Yeah, it's, it's something you can't control. I don't know. They, you know, they thank you to this and they thank you that. And, uh, it's hard to speak to because I don't have the other person uh, fueling the misconception, so that I can say, no, that's not that's not me. I don't know. That's a hard. That's probably a harder question than any you've asked. So. <laughs> well, I hope that this one's not too hard. Okay. What would you say is the best thing about being Mark D. Sanders? 
the best thing is just being able to, I mean, 60, I'll be 68 the end of summer, just being able to enjoy life, you know, for my first 40 years, it was, there was a lot of challenges. And for the next 20 years after that, there were a lot of challenges. And, uh, this just being able to go to Steamboat Springs in the summer and Maui in the winter. It's unbelievable. I wish my mother who passed away in 94, I wish she could have seen this. She was just, she wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a pot to pee in for many years and now I'm doing well. So that's been the best part of being me kind of. If anybody wants more information, they can visit markdsanders.me. Markdsanders.me. I always like to leave the interviews. I just give the guests the stage. Just let them Uh take the microphone. You can go anywhere you want, completely open-ended. What would you say to our audience? Well, who is your audience? Beats me. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Well, I'd say I don't know about a lot of things in life. You know, I, in that other interview, I talked about my best friend. His name was Greg Wichke. He was murdered in 1973, just before we, well, we were both 22 years old. He would have been 23 in a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I've thought about him. I've lived with his memory for all these years. And I came to realize after I wrote, I hope you dance that, uh, you know, people would say, well, is that for your children? I say, well, not really. Cause I wouldn't really say these things to my kids, but you know, some people might, but I came to realize it, it was a song for survivors. And I'm definitely a survivor. I, mean, I survived depression. I survived my family falling apart when I was a kid. I survived suicide, ideation, and attempts. And I came to realize that I've written this song that is a song for survivors. And it's sort of a message from the, like from Greg, because the hardest thing in life to me is when you lose someone you love. The hardest thing is just going on and, and being, living a full life. And to me, that's what I hope you dance is all about. It's just, and that, that I could say something like that is a testament. One, to the life I've lived, two, to the antidepressant I take. And, you know, it's just amazing in that regard. And it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with my friend who was murdered in 1973. And I take that to the next step and I go, why do we have all these guns? And why do all these people get murdered? You know, what are we doing? Because I realize how hard it is to survive losing someone like that. So 
that brings out the liberal in me. <laughs> anyway, that's just kind of free form, throwing it out there. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you for sharing. Well, thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I wish you were in as pretty a place as I am right now. I'm looking at the <laughs> the screen porch at the pond out back and the river beyond that. Stop breaking. in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That was a perfect a second pleasure. verse. And you're in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> See, yes. that sounds like something DePiro would say. Right there. <laughs> well, Have you interviewed you. him? I haven't. I haven't. You need. You need to interview DePiro. I would love to. Yeah. All right, sir. Until next time. Okay, Paul. Good to talk to you. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>